The time is August 13th, 2002. The place is the entrance to the Fraser River in British Columbia, Canada. The situation is as follows. The fishing vessel Cap Rouge is in severe distress. It has capsized, and although rescue vessels are on the scene, there are personnel missing. The Joint Rescue Coordination Center calls upon the search and rescue crews at Comox, BC to deploy specialty rescue divers to the overturned vessel where people are believed to still be trapped inside. This is Legacy Survival Stories. Legacy Survival Stories. Welcome to Legacy Survival Stories. My name is Dan Latramoy and I'll be your host. We've got another great show for you today. We're bringing you a returning guest, uh, a longtime Canadian Forces veteran, having retired in 2010. Uh, he worked with the Air Force. He worked with Search and Rescue as a SAR technician and a SAR team lead. He's currently project manager for Total Response Solutions, which is a veteran-owned and operated helicopter rescue training and emergency response company. Um, it's fantastic to welcome back Derek Rogers. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Uh, really, pl- real pleasure to be back. It's fantastic to have you. I, uh, I mean that uh, in, in in every way that I can, uh, because you've got uh, more stories than most people uh, would ever have in a lifetime, uh, and you've got some real gems, and I can't wait to hear what you've got for us today. Well, I like uh, having the opportunity to kind of pass some of this information on. Uh, a lot of it's kind of a historical knowledge within the search and rescue community, but it's good to kind of get it out there for people that may not have heard of it or may not know some of the stuff. Uh, just It's a good education for people out there yeah exactly right exactly right that's uh, why we got in this game was to hopefully uh, pass along some first-hand knowledge uh, from people like yourselves and people that have been in tough spots and and hear what it was really like if somebody else uh, if i can save somebody else the uh if i can save somebody else the bumps and bruises uh, i'm more than happy to do that fantastic uh so let's set the tone then a quick recap for the folks back home if you missed derek's earlier episode uh, which is episode one uh derek was uh, search and rescue with the Canadian forces for a number of years, and if I'm correct here, uh, Derek, this story takes us back to those days with uh, as a as a SAR tech or as a SAR team lead. Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't a SAR team lead at the time. I was still a team member. Uh, this is out on the west coast of Canada uh, when I was posted in Comox, BC. Uh, with 442 Squadron out there. Okay, so on the West Coast, uh, where the search and rescue bases are, and I'm not talking about every little Coast Guard location, but where the search and rescue aircraft are taken off from, the Air Force aircraft, uh, you're, this is Comox? Is there yeah. other bases out there? Uh, the primary base is CFB Comox. That's also the primary training center, and that's also where the Canadian Forces School of Search and Rescue is located, all at a Comox. The one base they have there, they're basically able to cover most of the West Coast, uh, and well into the interior. So that's the only primary SAR base on the West Coast. However, uh, the Navy has a secondary SAR role out of their base in Sydney and Esquimalt. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. So if you're so if you're launching aircraft from Comox, BC, uh, I'm assuming you're going all the way up till it touches Alaska and probably a little bit of yeah. Overlap we actually there. have some overlap uh, with our uh, with the uh, uh, Coast Guard guys up out of uh, Sitka and stuff. We have a bit of overlap, so it just provides uh, really good coverage for the West Coast. Okay. Well, that's good. I uh, I'm one of those people that I was a long time before I ever made it out to BC, and I had a chip on my shoulder about getting out there because everyone talks about how amazing BC is, and I you know. As an East Coast guy, I didn't want to. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear that nonsense about how great uh, the West Coast was. And then I, and then I got to BC, and I. Yeah, oh, it was awesome. A, it was a great place to work, and and in search and rescue, it offers a lot of challenges. Uh, you have the ocean, uh, but you're also dealing with the mountains and. 
Similar to what you just said, the West Coast draws a lot of people out there and they want to go out there for the environment and the beauty and the scenery. And a lot of them get lost. So it's a busy place to work. Uh, believe it or not, the uh, I'm trying to remember, the, ghost, the gross grind, uh, the trail just outside of Vancouver, people have a very much a false sense of security. They can see the lights of Vancouver. So they're thinking, well, I'm safe. I can see town. And they still get lost. Really? <laughs> yeah, it keeps uh, North Shore Search and Rescue. That's one of the primary civilian search and rescue agencies out there, or volunteer search and rescue agencies. Keeps them very busy. Because, uh, you know, you leave Vancouver, you drive 20 minutes in any direction, and you're in the mountains, and you're in the wilderness. So, uh, yeah, people get lost. Yeah, they, they just, a, they're just not prepared. They don't know any better. Right? No, so. people are people. And uh, I, I, you know what? I can actually see that, though. I, or I, I should say I can see that. I could relate to that. Like, you can see the lights of the city over there. I mean, the, you know, there, there's my bearing. There's my direction. How lost could I possibly be? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. You get on the other <laughs> side of the mountain, you can't see nothing. Okay, guess what? <laughs> or even in some areas, just getting the trees. You're, you know, you have 200-foot-high trees. You're not going to see nothing once you're up in there, right? Yeah, yeah, I bet. So, okay, let's uh, let's set the tone for this story then. Uh, so, you're working as a SAR team member out of Comox, BC? Yes. Yes. I was still uh, still in my primary training, uh, still doing my team member. I was, I was a SAR tech, but I was still at team member level. Uh, I hadn't been fully qualified uh, as a team leader yet. I was only a couple of years in the trade. Uh, we were still flying on the Labrador helicopter. Okay. That was the old uh, twin blade. Uh, in the States, they call it a Sea Knight. Uh, it's a twin bladed yeah, it uh, like, tandem looks, rotor. It looks like a Chinook type thing yeah, it's a it's a it's a size down from the chinook chinook could be a large just be a medium type thing right so uh they're they're great out they're great airframes uh we upgraded to the uh cormorant aircraft each one ones a few years later but this was still on the lab and uh, i was basically into work on a tuesday morning and uh it was a work day for me which where you go in you do your maintenance you do this and that and all of a sudden uh basically it turned from a work day to a mission uh we got a call uh, from uh, ops and JRCC that uh, we had a basically a vessel overturned vessel and they required a dive team. So, so this was a very obscure call for us. You yeah, don't that, get that very often. That's that's that, that's that's sort of weird. That's highly specific. So it's an overturned vessel. It's already overturned. Yes, and they're and they're needing a dive team specifically. Yeah, they wanted a dive team. Uh, now. Of course, we were kind of confused by this because the Coast Guard, you know, that's kind of their, that's their primary kind of role as Marine and these types of missions. But they called us, they needed assistance. So we assumed, okay, well, we'll get everything ready and we'll start heading south. We were anticipating it not actually happening. We're thinking, okay, they're going to call for extra assistance, which you do. You want some redundancy in case something goes wrong. And we thought we'd be like the secondary asset, right? Yeah. So if I can segue here for a second, uh, and and from the previous discussion we had, uh, the the SAR techs, the SAR groups, uh, the, the team leads, and 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 the team members, you guys would have you'd have your high angle training, you'd have your 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 paramedicine training, uh, you'd probably have a certain amount of sea survival, mountain survival, um, you know, climbing, rappelling. Uh, does does scuba diving fit into all that? Yeah, actually, it's uh, it's a fairly big por- portion of the course, and. Uh, the SAR trade defers to the experts. We actually go to the uh, fleet dive, dive unit. Uh, we actually learn through the Navy how to be basic divers. And then we do more advanced uh, trade-specific dive programs. It used to be called uh, overturned vessel training. And the whole idea was it wouldn't necessarily just be vessels, but if a plane flips over in the water or a vessel flips over or whatever else it might be. Something, a car in the water. Yeah, we be- have to have SOPs to kind of safely go in and extract survivors. Now, our, our role is just survivors. So that's why we thought, you know, if the Navy's calling, sorry, if the Coast Guard's calling us to come up, by the time we get down there, there's not really any survivability left, right? So we were thinking, oh, this probably won't happen, but 
let's get all hands on deck and head down. Uh, we're one of the few organizations that dive will dive in a two man team. Uh, what 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 type of t- what type of teams do most organizations? Well, dive generally, in? you're going to have a dive supervisor, you're going to have a standby diver, and you're going to have a pair of divers in the water. Oh, I see. You're, you're you're almost talking like full commercial sort of. Uh, Pretty much the commercial standards. Yeah, you'll go to that. But uh, because we only work in two person teams, generally we have SOPs designed that two guys can do it. Now, as it happens, as it happens to this day, there was more people available in the shop. And I was actually kind of a spare man at the wedding that day. I wasn't just on a work day. So I got commandeered to be on the dive team. Uh, my team leader was Mike Vature. He was going to be the, uh, the primary. Okay. And then we actually jumped on the lab. And the lab already had uh, Wayne Chisholm. Uh, he was the team leader. And Paul Mokum was the team member. So we basically had a four-man team heading down. So we had a full team heading down. And we grabbed... All the dive gear we can get our hands on, loaded up the loaded up the helicopter, and we started heading south. So as fast dry as we could. suits, tanks, masks, goggles, fins, weights. Yeah, though. and at this time too, we were just starting to get into the uh, full communication systems. So we're using like an Aga mask, oh, okay. uh, bailout bottles, and we had had some training, ironically, by the Canadian Coast Guard on doing these types of dives. Okay, so yeah. let's focus on that point just for a second here. You some of, some of the training you received, not the bulk of it, but some of the training you received. Yeah, some of the specialty training, uh, specifically with overturned vessels, uh, they had had a dive team on the West Coast for a number of years because out there you they, do... They be in the Coast Guard. Yes, the Coast Guard, because you do get vehicles that go in the water and stuff like that. And the big thing is Vancouver Airport is right on the cusp of the Fraser River, the mouth of the Fraser River. So the whole idea was there is they wanted to have a way to mitigate in the event of a water ditching or a water landing. They wanted to have like dive capability, dive teams, rescue. Uh, they actually have a hovercraft assigned specifically to the airport area, or they did at that time, Okay. Uh, specifically for this reason, if an aircraft was the, because most, most aircraft incidents happen on takeoff and landing yeah, 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 within, within eyesight of an airport, really. So this was one of their mitigating factors was putting a, a specialty team right at the airport okay so then back to back to the core story here then so here's you you've been kind of scrambled grabbed as an available person with suitable skills Mm -hmm. hey derek come on join us here on the chopper you grab all the gear you can you're going to a site where you've been called for an overturned vessel which is sort of weird because it's an overturned vessel that you're being called to when you know that there's already a coast guard team yeah it was was kind of strange like we were we you know we were just well they need another team so we thought again we thought it was just a redundancy kind of like when we get called out on a mission They'll try and mobilize other assets in the event that that first asset, you know, has an engine problem or, you know, something goes wrong. You can get as much resources as you can. Exactly. Yep. Mobilize everything. You know, it's like, it's like a fire. Uh, you know, send all the fire trucks. If you don't need them, they go home. Yeah, you can always right? turn them around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're on our way down and uh, it was kind of odd because we kind of, sh- we kind of like we were kind of late to our own party. Uh, as soon as we show up, we realize uh, there's a vessel overturned. Uh, there's a lot of support vessels around. There's even a BC ferry providing a wave block, uh, kind of like stopped. Oh, like breaking the wind, breaking the waves, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, this was uh, this was not a uh, this wasn't a small event. So we thought we'd show up and they'd be like, "Yeah, we're done." And they're like, "No, we need you now down here." And at this point, we're still trying to figure out what the whole. So you're flying in was. in your in your Labrador helicopter. You can see all these boats. So you yeah, we did a, we did a circuit around to see what was going on and uh, established communications with the guys on the ground. Made sure everything was good to go. And they're like, "No, we need to dive team now." Uh, and, and like with a sense of urgency, there. Yeah, and what we found out later, uh, it's kind of, again, there's some politics involved here. It's really unfortunate, but these things happen. Uh, what it was is that the dive team was not allowed to go into the overturned vessel. 
Okay, so hang on. When you say the dive team. Sorry, the Coast Guard dive the team. The Coast Guard dive who, who Are they on site? Yeah, they're on site. They're all good to go. In fact, the Coast Guard the Coast Guard team did most of the initial work on this mission. They did a lot of the heavy work on this. Like they had shown up. They had managed to recover one crew member. They managed to recover uh, the captain of the vessel. Uh, they managed to secure, make sure, you know, basically do a, a recce of the vessel, secured the hatches, cleared some of the lines. They did all the heavy lifting. But their mandate had changed. Now you got to remember, in the Canadian, in Canada, the Coast Guard is a civilian agency, right? So they fall under a lot of the occupational health and safety standards. Somebody had interpreted those standards in such a way that these guys were not allowed to go into the vessel when it was overturned. So some sort of I don't know underwater confined space classification kind exactly. of thing. Exactly, that's kind of what it was. Is that they said, okay, uh, because of the level of risk. We aren't going to send people. We aren't going to send Coast Guard personnel into an overturned vessel. Huh. Now, where the military works, uh, like we we do have rules and regulations, and we're very safe. We're not a liability-driven organization. I mean, I mean, we don't, we can't do it that way. No, you, know, you can't. You can't send guys into Bosnia or Afghanistan and say, "Well, what's the chance of them being killed?" Yeah. You know, the military is a little less uh, liability-driven, where these civilian agencies are hugely concerned about that. Yeah, right? liability That's, is a it's huge a driving driver. factor. So uh, we went down, and surprisingly enough, some of the guys that were there were the guys that had initially taught us how to do overturn vessel procedures so i'm trying to i'm trying to get this picture in my mind right you guys have been called on what uh on the book case you are a sar base and you're responding to a sar call so that part is normal uh the fact that it's an overturned vessel is a little unusual but there you show up you got all your dive gear as you say you 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 figure you're just going to be kind of bat and clean up and just you yeah know. we figure be a backup right maybe there's a secondary resource and now you've arrived and there's a clear sense of urgency that they need you down here like right now yeah, to they do want a dive. Us as, they want us as a primary they want us to and on top of all that the dive team from the Coast Guard, who some of whom had specifically trained you guys on how to do this, is there and not allowed to do it. Yeah, I, because of their because of the rules within their their organization. You looked you looked at some of the boys that were there, and you could just tell the level of frustration. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it was just yeah. It was, Imagine uh, it. It's one of those situations where you know search and rescue is a difficult job, but you shouldn't have to deal with bureaucracy. And unfortunately, these guys were put in that situation, and uh, you know. At, but at the time, it was like, you know what, we're just going to do the diet. Like, this this is all secondary. Yeah, yeah. At the time, it's like, okay, what do you need us to do? We're doing it. You know, it's one of those things. It's that, uh, you know, typical kind of military guy. You know, what do you want me to do? It's going to get done. I'll ask questions later. So okay. that was the way we kind of approached it. So, all right. So we, we understand the political situation that's on the go here now. And you know what you're here to do. And so again, that, that was all yeah, yeah, discovered that was all later. hindsight. That yeah. was all 2020. We, so yeah. now paint the picture for us. You, you've, you've done your, 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 you've done your recce by air. You, you've landed somewhere close by and somebody grab you on shore and run you out there? Or? Well, what we did is uh, basically what we decided to do is said, okay, we kind of assessed it as the team. We had two very experienced team leaders and we had two somewhat experienced team members. So we decided that myself and Mike would be the dive team and Wayne Chisholm was the other team leader. He would kind of act as our dive supervisor slash okay. liaison. Yeah. So what we did was we loaded all the gear into the rescue baskets and we hoisted all the gear down to uh, the hovercraft and the hovercraft taxi us over to one of the Coast Guard vessels. Oh, so you, you literally hoisted down to the... Yeah, okay. we, went down, we didn't go straight to the water. We went to the hover because we weren't exactly sure what all the... We wanted to actually physically talk to somebody and get the layout. So while while Mike and I were prepping our dive gear for an overturned uh, uh, vessel uh, penetration to go underwater, 
Uh, Wayne went and did a debrief from the Coast Guard guys and did a debrief from one of the casualties that had survived, not one of the casualties, one of the survivors, to try to get an idea of what was going on, what the layout was, what the layout of the vessel was. So Wayne was able to come over and draw us a map of the boat where he thought people might be. So we kind of had an idea what we were going into. So you're almost draw drawing sort of a floor plan almost. Literally. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, Mike was kind of a brilliant idea is he actually took a grease marker, a grease pencil, and we have red dry suits and he actually drew the boat on his arm and I did the same thing. And then we were able to kind of X off what areas we had been into just that's, with a black grease marker. That's right? actually, that is genius. That's well, a very, very clever thing to do. Very simple, but it worked really well. And you know, it's just one of those things because we carry the grease marker to mark the hull, to, to mark the hull so that you know if the vessel is sinking or oh, listing or anything so like that. The, so as you, actually, I was going to get to that. Mm -hmm. So you're, when you're, when you're prepping for this sort of thing, you, you, you are putting markings on the hull so yeah. you can see if the, the, and the Coast Guard had already done this for us. Like they had done everything all the preliminary they even lashed like the primary entry point they even lashed the doors for us and everything else so when we go down what we were taught to do is you have lashings so you have a bunch of lashings kind of like basically what you do is you, you know you have an elastic or something around your arm and you have like little pieces of rope in there so you can lash doors shut or lash doors open so they don't close on you once you go in and then you also have some glow sticks so you can kind of mark rooms that you've been in or yeah, mark areas areas breadcrumbs really yeah exactly okay. exactly so you're going to basically have a trail of breadcrumbs you can go in on and of course we we always do this stuff on a uh, buddy line which is kind of like your tender line, right? Now, we weren't doing this with surface-supplied air. We were doing it with tanks. So we have to kind of monitor our tanks, monitor our, you know, our oxygen or our air consumption, those types of things, right? So uh, while Wayne was getting all the information and briefing us and uh, Mike and I were getting ready, and then it was, you know, basically the Coast Guard guys told us everything we needed to know basically to get up to the vessel. And then uh, we knew we were looking for uh, a couple people. Uh, sorry, we were looking for... I think there was still three people inside the vessel that we suspected, three or four actually. And uh, as soon as we went down underwater, we kind of got set up. And the way it works is uh, I would sit at the door uh, for, for the first dive. Basically, I sat at the door for the first dive and Mike did the initial penetrations. And I kind of basically buddy lined him as he checked rooms. And then we kind of switched it up. So we kind of went, uh, one guy would go in, one guy would sit at the door as the safety dive. So the, the person at the door, are they also on air or are they, yeah, no, are you at the surface? When I say they're underwater. So we're about 14 feet underwater uh, when you look at the deck. Uh, now the thing is, this was a family run fishing vessel, right? It was like, you know, your typical, you know, West Coast uh, trawler, saner type thing. Uh, you know, just a small fishing boat, right? A family-run fishing operation. When you say small ballpark, what do you think? Forty feet, fifty uh, I think, feet? I think it was a. I think it was a sixty-four. Well, out here they call them sixty-four eleven. Yeah, I think yeah. it was a. Yeah, I think it was a sixty-five foot. Okay, so thing. I yeah. mean, when you say small, it's not a ship. Yeah, yeah no, no, it's not, not a rowboat, uh, but it's not a, a large. Like it, it would be a uh, probably equivalent to an in, inshore fishery boat. Okay, versus very far offshore, right? But you know, these family-run vessels, um, they are a business, but. They're also almost like a, a camper, for lack of a better term. Like, I mean, it's almost like an RV. And imagine taking a family camper or a family camper trailer that's all loaded up for, you know, a couple weekends up at the camp. And now flip it upside down and sink it underwater. Uh, it, I couldn't believe the debris. And the other big limiting factor is the diesel fuel. Uh, all the oh, surface diesel. All the, oh, so all fumes. the fuel that came out of the boat's fuel yeah, tanks as soon as is now we start, As soon as we started getting close to it, we had to kind of like lock down and go on air or go on, uh, you know, go on uh, compressed air because, you know, the fumes were so bad on the surface of the water. And not only that, any of your skin that was exposed, 
you know, you got that, you know, it's almost like a burn uh, that you get a chemical burn that you get off the fuel, right? So it was, uh, it was challenging to say at least. And again, like, you know, where you came to the surface, you couldn't just take your mask off because you're going to just, you know, you're get those fumes all back in. So stuff, you almost right? had to leave a little extra air just oh, so you no, could get you, to. And this was something you had to factor in when you were doing it because you didn't want to be coming up on your last breath type thing. Or we never try to do that. We always try to have a reserve when we're diving. But, you know, if you're pushing things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. So uh, we uh, basically set up and we started doing these dives into the vessel to try and find uh, the survivors. So now, you said there was three or four missing still? Yeah, there's still people missing. Now, one of the problems we had here was, again, we got there and the vessel had already been overturned for a while. So the any, argument any, was- Any kind of ETA, how long it had been overturned? Yeah, I think we took about, uh, I'm gonna say it took us about 35 or 40 minutes by the time we were called to be on scene, getting ready to go in the water. And presumably it had already been capsized. I mean, they called you, they, they had already said it was capsized. So yeah. it must've been sometime before that as yeah, well. So we were probably looking over an hour before we got on scene. So in all reality, we were thinking, okay, what's the level of survivability? It's probably not much. Is it worth doing a high risk dive? But once we got down there, uh, we realized there's a large air pocket on the top. Of the I was going to say, would there not be some air pockets trapped? Yeah. In there? So yeah. The, you know, we thought, okay, you know, there's viability here. People could be alive. And uh, once Mike, Mike didn't really get into details because he didn't want us, uh, Mike and Wayne didn't get into too many details. We later found out that there was children on board and they were worried that, you know, don't tell the new guy, you know, they basically limited our information, said, okay, you're looking for casualties. They didn't get into who's, what's, where's, or what. We kind of found this out. Probably doing you a favor at the time. It was actually pretty smart yeah. uh, because, you know, when people, as soon as you think kids. Yeah. You start making, it's kind of the same concept they have in the aviation community or in other search and rescue assets, where you kind of keep the pilot sterile from the mission details, because you don't want that, you call it sterile cockpit type. You don't want that guy making decisions based on emotion versus decisions based on the reality yeah. of the situation. And they're human right? beings, like they're going to. I'm, I'm trying to picture oh, myself. If somebody says me, tells me they're a kid in there, I'm going to kill myself trying to get that yeah. kid out of there. Yeah, and absolutely. Virtually, you know, that's that's what we do, right? But uh, yeah, we went in and we found out basically the situation was that um, we had one, two, three, there's, there's still four casualties left. Turned out one of the casualties was the captain's wife, his two kids, and some deck hand, and a deckhand. So, so where's the captain at this point? Now, the captain was one of the survivors. So he was on the Coast Guard boat with us while we were getting ready. And that was who uh, Wayne so and Mike were interviewing. To get okay, the and this is where you got the layout of the boat, or they got the layout of the boat, yeah, which they then passed yeah. on to one you One of the guys. deckhands and the captain had been thrown when the vessel rolled over. Uh, now, kind of leading up to this incident, apparently what they were doing is the boat was transiting. They were right at the, this place called Sand Hills. It's right near the mouth of the Fraser River. And there's an area where you go from salt water, uh, kind of like a brine, to fresh water. Oh, so you get that brackish. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the brackish. And I guess what happened was uh, the vessel, uh, basically while they were taxiing here, they, were, they did have a net out. And I guess it was that change in buoyancy that caused them to roll. Uh, I, like the details are still, there's a full Transport Canada investigation We're going to have this. to look into that, that because yeah. there is like on larger vessels, mm -hmm. you have to actually uh, make an allowance for that. And, because I don't, and I don't know if that had happened. You have to change your bill or your, you know, how much water you have in the bilge, that type of, you have to make some adjustments for different buoyancy. For the, for the folks at home, uh, loosely speaking, stuff floats better in salt water than it does in fresh water uh, yeah, in very, very general terms. Now the percentages are small. So if you take a canoe on the ocean or to canoe on the, on the lake, you wouldn't notice a difference, but on a larger vessel with a massive load, 
where if you lose five or ten percent of your buoyancy, that might make a difference. Yeah. And uh, so we'll have to we'll undetermined right now uh, for the purposes of this whether that was a the, the contributing factor, but certainly could have been. It did it did appear that I was probably something that and they were you know towing a load and you know switching water, so a variety of factors. But two people got thrown off the. It happened so quickly that no one else had time to get out of the vest. So basically, probably people that were kind of near the deck or an open window kind of got chucked. Yeah. And if they were below deck, they didn't. Oh yeah. boy. And uh, we found out later that, like, when the Coast Guard did their initial recce, they were actually able to recover one body that was kind of not in the vessel, but kind of in the uh, exterior rigging. So then we knew we still had three more people to look for at the time, right? So, so uh, there's you making your dives, going in and out, taking turns. Yeah, basically for- we, you know, again, one guy would sit at the door. Uh, he's still underwater, but 14 feet is the max depth on these dives because you're not really going that deep. You're just trying to get down toward the entry. Well, was he, by the way, any idea what the actual water depth, if the vessel had, if it, it broke loose and sunk or something like that? Oh, you know, I'm not sure. It's fairly deep there. Well, put this way, there's a, a full-size BC ferry right beside us. So they must have at least a 20 or 30 foot uh, a draft on draft. It? So it's probably, you know. It's deep enough for them. Yeah, it's deep. Yeah, okay. it's, it would be deep enough for that thing to go right to the bottom. So I guess that's one sort of where the vessel's at the surface, you're only diving down 14 feet and it extends your... Extends your yeah, I, we weren't worried about dive time, put it that way. Like, we were still monitoring it, but we weren't that worried about dive time. Like you'd be there all day and not worry about... Did they, Were you guys swapping out tanks or something like that? Well, we did. We... Because... Uh, we, there's some adrenaline involved. Uh, you're everybody's an air pig when you're underwater <laughs> in an upside down boat. All right, so we were eating up the air, uh, and again, we didn't want to go past that third, like a third of a tank safety factor, yeah. especially when you're doing this because you don't know if you're going to get hung up. So we did a we did stop at one point and swap out tanks. So we went through two hundred pounders, uh, and then we had bailout bottles as well, just in case. But uh, yeah, we burned through a tank each, uh, and then did a second dive on the second tank. Okay. Right? And again, we were just really monitoring that safety factor so that we weren't, uh, and we, we based it on whoever the biggest, like I was the biggest air hog. I was the new guy. So we based it on my tank. So we'd say, okay, we're swapping. Yeah, you, lowest so, common denominator. Exactly. Thing. Exactly. So, so if, uh, if, if, if you don't mind, what's it like inside there? Like the visibility has got to be. The visibility. Now it was a nice day outside. So the visibility wasn't bad. Like we had good sunlight and good sunlight penetration. But like I said, it's like taking. Oh, so there was sunlight getting into. Well, like, you know, the, you know, when you're doing a dive, the first 10, 15 feet, you got good visibility and yeah. then it starts getting darker. So we still had a kind of that residual uh, light coming from the surface, but inside the vessel, we didn't have that. It was a little darker. Now in the main cabin we had fairly good visibility because the uh sunlight you know that light was kind of penetrating a bit and we did have flashlights we were using you know underwater lights and stuff but the problem we were having was that uh first of all the oil and the film so when you came up to check out on airspace basically it was like looking through a layer of oil uh, like your windshield when you're going through a car wash just can't see because you have all the debris and the other thing is these vessels i tried to kind of describe it as a camper like, I mean, there's boxes of cereal and there's food and there's like people live on these vessels. They're live aboard fishing vessels. So everything that would be in your cottage is now floating. And the worst thing on the world was sleeping bags and bedding. They're in the water and you're trying to like push up through a sheet in the water. So what you end up doing is you take your gloves off. So you've got some tactile sense. Now it was fairly cold, but not cold enough to, you couldn't do it. Uh, and you're trying to feel for things. And now the other problem we had is I grabbed on what I thought for sure was a person. I thought, okay, that feels like an arm. It was a fish. So it must've been either from the- from Like just swimming around or from their no, catch? it was dead. It was, uh. So it must've been either something they had caught or what. And I'm like, okay, that's not a person. But you're trying to just kind of feel around 
to see if you can find anybody in this mess. You know what I mean? Like it was just a, uh, yeah, it was pretty. In, it was pretty intense trying to you know, sift I through this stuff, trying bet, to find that's people. That's crazy. Like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying to. And for folks at home, like, try and imagine yourself, you know, locked in a uh, a large-ish closet with essentially little to no light other than your flashlight. You're underwater, and you're, you know, it, and everything that was in the closet is still there. So you're feeling through stuff, trying to determine what's what. Boy, that would be difficult and nerve-wracking. Well, it's uh, we after the mission, you know, you always have that kind of like you know debrief, mental debrief. So what what phobia didn't we address on this mission? You know what I mean? Like other than heights, well, I guess we hoisted. So you know we kind of kind of rolled it all into one situation. Yeah, fear of water, uh, fear of confined spaces. The guys, uh, but Mike, Mike and Wayne, who kind of ran the mission, uh, they did a phenomenal job, and like just so much experience. And I was a young guy at the time, and you know even little things like you know about sterilizing the conversation, you know things that that's really smart. You know, and you're thinking, wow. So you, you t- I took a lot away from the mission. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mike did most of the heavy lifting on this one. He managed to recover uh, a couple different bodies. When you say heavy lifting, it, it, he, it he happened found, to be he the one that he was the one that yeah, actually he found the bodies. And you know, it, he was he was a better diver than I was. I, I have no shame in saying that he was. Uh, it was a really good star attack. And I was in a learning phase still, right? So it was uh, it was uh, kind of drinking from a fire hose on my end. And uh, I joke around with all the guys. I said, on that mission, my job was don't screw up and don't drown. That was it. <laughs> don't, make, don't make it worse. <laughs> yeah, don't make it worse. Don't screw up and don't drown. So that was kind of my primary objective in the whole mission, right? And that's all that was going through my head it was just do everything according to the book and do it as safely as possible, right? So wow, yeah. So you've done your two dives. Uh, Mike found. And did you? How many did you get out of the out of the wreck? Now uh, the Coast Guard managed to find one of the. Uh, so we had two guys, two per, two personnel got thrown off the boat. The Coast Guard managed to recover a guy, and they they both survived. Yeah, the two that got thrown survived. Okay, unfortunately, well, they did, but I mean, unfortunately, the rest. You know, basically, that poor captain lost his family. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just one of these heart. You know, after the fact, you're like, I'm glad I didn't know this. Yeah, before right. I went in, you, because you, there's um, no way, there's no way that would affect what you were doing. Like, you know, if it didn't, you'd have to start questioning. You know, you're a robot. Yes, yeah, you're a Terminator. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and one day they'll build robots for that too, but we're not there yet. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not because you know the robot's going to make that decision. You know, who do I save, right? It's like one of those uh, Asimov's laws or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, who do you save, who don't you save type thing. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So so now, the did you end up getting, so there was four missing, I think you said still. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Coast Guard picked up somebody else in the rigging on the outside. Yeah. And then that would mean three still on the yeah, inside. Yeah, so Mike, Mike managed to find uh, one of the deckhands, uh, and we recovered him. He was the first guy that we found. Uh, and then we found uh, the, the, the wife, uh, the, one of the female crew members, the wife of the captain. And then unfortunately we found the son, uh, the young boy. And that's when it kind of came home like, oh geez, what are we doing? Uh, so the only, we knew the other two had not, had succumbed. Uh, you could tell it was fairly obvious. However, we did, you know, still did a full recovery. We attempted to, you know, attempted to put a mask on yeah, them. You do the out. things, you put the O2 you really on. Do, you do, yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you know, for the first two, we pretty much knew that these people, you know, you could just tell visually that, okay, there's fairly they, long gone. They've, they've uh, expired. The sun, however, we decided to do a full medevac on, uh, you know, there's that uh, resiliency of youth with children, cold water. A lot of kids have been recovered, cold water drowning, you know, significant amount of time after cold water drowning. And in all reality, we don't know when he drowned. He might have drowned two minutes ago. 
No, that's you know, that, so we were like we're we're treating this one like all out. Now Paul Moquin had stayed on the aircraft, so Paul did all the medical on. Are the they envelope. flying the whole time? Yeah, or? they were they were doing circuits for us. They had enough fuel and time. So as soon as the sun, as soon as we recovered the young boy, it was like okay, full on medevac. We just treated him like it was a like you know let's get this kid going. So we got him into a stretcher, hoisted him straight up to the aircraft, and they just they. Just Paul was doing CPR on the aircraft, and he just booked it to the to the Vancouver General Hospital. They were there in minutes, type thing, right? So we attempted that, just basically said based on you know the you know the yeah, young child. What right? Derek's referring to, by the way, for folks at home, if you anybody can go look at you know Red Cross statistics or uh, St. John Ambulance, something like that, and and the the freakish uh, almost rate of of survivability for for kids is is just so much higher uh, not 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 to say that bad things don't happen they certainly do, yeah, they do. Uh, yeah. but but the you know if a if a if a 10 year old gets splashed into some ice cold water their odds are a lot better than than they a 60 they seem to have this resilience to hypothermia it's almost like they go into some type of like uh, you know some something we've lost evolutionary it's almost like they hibernate you know, and they manage this. They can go for a very long time in these conditions. There's been cases where, if I'm not mistaken, kids have been almost for hours. They've been in cold water. Yeah, there's there's survived, a couple of right? stories out west of people getting locked out of their houses, stuff like yeah, that. There's some yeah. crazy long stories. So we were we were trying to hedge the bet on this one. Now, unfortunately, uh, we decided to call the mission after the young boy. Uh, we had, well, did, didn't you have it, or was there still somebody missing? We still had one missing, and we found out later it was the daughter, uh, the young daughter. Now, unfortunately. She wasn't recovered until the vessel was, uh, they did a proper salvage job on the vessel. Actually, like, floated it, pulled it out yeah, of the water. Yeah, she was, it ended up, she was in a sleeping bag, in a corner of a room. You know, it just wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't something we'd be able to recover easily. Because, again, I mean, imagine filling your closet full of water and sinking it, you know, and sinking it and then trying to find something. In yeah, there. feel it, feel around yeah, in there. It was, yeah. it was literally... The visibility was so bad with the oil and the debris that it was a tactile search. You're basically just searching with your hands, trying to find something in the debris, right? So unfortunately, we didn't find her until after the vessel was recovered. Um, it was it was an it was an interesting mission, and like in hindsight, there's a lot of things, you know. Unfortunately, like the bureaucracy and stuff got involved, but you know, we were able to bring some closure for the families, and we were able to, you know, at least put an effort in to try and do this right. Well, what what you know? what more could you do that you did? I I, I don't see how. Well, and you know. The tra what I find to be the real tragedy of the mission, outside the loss of life, I mean, the families were devastated by this, but also the rescuemen, uh, and I'm referring to the Coast Guard rescue divers, they took a hit, man. Those guys... It was a how would you, it was a moral injury to those guys, man. That's I'm, I'm trying they to imagine allowed to do their job. Ah, that would be tough. You know? And oh. uh, to this day, I just feel so bad for them, right? And again, none of this I didn't none of this was even in my mind till after the fact. And you know, it took me to it took me a while to even kind of acknowledge this part of it. You know that these guys are really hurting because you know you just don't have that maturity sometimes. You don't have that experience. But as you get a little more advanced in the trade and you do more of this stuff, you realize that you know telling those guys not to do their job, man, that's that's. Uh, you know, well, especially yeah. when like, what, what's the purpose of being like? Why do you exist as a Coast Guard rescue? Why does the Coast Guard have a rescue team if not to do this specific job? Yeah, it, it was and a then, bad movie plot. Uh, you know, it was just oh my god. You know, and you think to yourself, well, I would have just done it anyway, but it's not like that in the real world. No. You know, people are saying you go in there, you know, you will be either forced because remember they got a, they got a line on you. They want to pull you back in. They're going to pull you back in. Yeah, and, and there's you're a, not, and you're not going to go in there without a buddy line or without a safety line, right? So. Yeah, yeah really the, the the hero of a movie often does. Oh, I'm going anyway. You know, dive in with your with your with your with your Baywatch outfit on. But yeah, it, as you I say, know. it's not, it's not like that in the real world. No, it's not. But you know, again, 
the one part that is real, these guys were hurting, man. They had a bad go. Yeah, that I, I could see that. So if you so takeaways for 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 Derek then uh, you you said uh, that you learned a lot from the the team leads on there. Uh, yeah. the, as you, uh, I like your phrase there, sort of sterilize the conversation a little bit. Keep it. I learned, keep it I facts. learned a lot on like the dive side of it. You know, we just did our drills and we did our drills as best we could in an adverse environment. So we did what we were trained to do by the guys that we were helping. Uh, so that was good, and we had a ton of support. Uh, from all the Coast Guard guys that were there. Like, I mean, I never touched my tank. Boom, boom, my tank was swapped. You know, they just, because everybody knew what was going on, right? So there was a lot of interagency support and mutual support. Which is fantastic to Which hear. is awesome. So like the operations side, I learned a lot, but I think I learned more on the, um, how would you say, like the human side, the human factor side. Really? You know, and it was things like sterilizing a conversation, trying to like, you know, you know, check the empathy type thing. You got to go more with, you know, Straight facts. Unfortunately, yeah, you, you got to triage the situation. It's somewhat robotic, but it's the only way to do it safely. Well, as you say, you know? and, and we, we've said it three times already today, if, if, if you knew there was kids, it would have absolutely skewed what you were doing oh, and possibly to, to your detriment or maybe crewmen's detriment. Your, well, your- and again, and now in hindsight as well, I think the, guy, like the Coast Guard guys knew there was kids. Because they had talked to the captain, they had they had been down there for a while communicating. So I think that just added to that insult that much more. That yeah, there's kids in there, you're not allowed to go help them. You know, so it was uh, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, we weren't able to rescue anyone. We were able to bring closure, and we were able to act the way we were supposed to do our job, which was great. Unfortunately, the Coast Guard guys didn't get that benefit. They were robbed of that. So yeah, they didn't yeah. even have that that bit of yeah. Like, at least we could go in and say we yeah. did the most we could do under the environment. Like, you know, you, you lost the game, but you played your guts out. Well, yeah, they, you, they you didn't could, even get to play the game. Yeah. You can look yourself in the mirror and say, well, I did, I did the best I could do under those conditions. Unfortunately, these guys didn't get that opportunity and they were there so much earlier. So I guess as a takeaway, you know, even in the Sartec trade, they've often said, okay, we don't need to do this type of training because it doesn't happen that often. Now, even within our organization, I got two or three guys that work with our company that have done this live. So it kind of contradicts that. But, you know, when people are doing bureaucracy can get in the way. When, when you're counting pennies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you're counting pennies, like, do we need to do this overturn vessel training? How, how often do they actually use this little piece of training here? But yeah, Even if it only gets used once a year, that's once a year you got it. And again, anybody flying over water uh, or working on the water has to anticipate or have something in place for what happens if this vessel overturns. Like, or what happens if this thing sinks? You know, well, how are you going to get out of here? Uh, it's it's interesting. Like, I'm surprised that there's not more, it's not, like, for example, in the aviation community and helicopters, they've actually have, they've been designed uh, into the aircraft features that are to help people egress and stuff like that. Push out windows, emergency windows, stuff like that. You don't see that very often in the fishing community or the boating community. And it makes you wonder, you know, should they have these types of uh, integrations that consider these types of safety factors? Like how do you get out of a boat when it turns over? You know, like, you know, you're not going to have your bearings. It's not like on a a helicopter where you're seatbelted in, you have your landmarks, you know where you are. You know, if that boat floods, you know, now again, they don't flood in an instant. It's probably not as fast as something like a helicopter, but in this case, it probably was. You know, probably very similar timelines to a helicopter ditching. You know, oh man, mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's a tough story, and uh, I, I imagine you got carrying a little baggage with that one. And as you say, I'm sure the the rescue well, from the, the the Coast Guard team would be as well. I'd say they're definitely yeah, and I I, I can pretty much guarantee that was a factor, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But again, we went in, we did what we could do. Uh, again, on the technical side of it, 
after this mission, we went back and said, okay, here's what worked, here's what didn't work. And that was actually a lot of those things, like for the equipment that we had, some of the communications that we had, we actually went back and we actually improved it. So uh, uh, on that note, just and just out of curiosity, so I'm I'm not an expert diver. I would rank myself somewhere between nov- novice and amateur. Um, and uh, but knowing what I know about the rescue organizations and the process and and what you'd be dealing with, because um, I have been in an upside down boat. Um, I'm wondering what, what and and from what you described and and what my limited knowledge, uh, I, I can't think of anything that I would have done different than what you did. What 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 would you guys change on that? You said you you made some corrections. What things? Well, you uh, this was one of our first uh this is one of our first uh uses of the full face mask okay all right and yep. the full face mask was actually really good because when you came out of the water your face wasn't exposed you weren't getting the uh the burns from the fuels and the chemicals in the water uh you had good ventilation uh but for example we had communications with this we have uh, underwater transducers we do have wireless communications but like we need to have you know, some backup comms, stuff like that. And then we've seen some inventions later on. They're like, oh, that's a good idea. And we took away from some other parallel communities. Like, I don't know if any of you guys ride dirt bikes or anything like that, but you ever see they have the tearaway, the tearaway strips you can buy for a visor. So if the visor gets mud on it, you tear away the strip and you can see. We incorporate, you know, we went out and bought a bunch of these strips of tearaway screens for the Agamas so that, you know, if the Agamas got covered in oil, you could pull it off and now you can see. You'd be able to, okay. So we started looking at things like that to try to make it a little safer if it happened again, right? And even things like, you know, the type of line we use. Well, you didn't want to use a buoyant line in there. Maybe you want to use like a, you know, a non-buoyant line. Things like that that we ended up revisiting. And it's been an evolution ever since. Uh, trying to do that stuff, and, and and there probably isn't one right answer either. You just you just try and pick up skills, pick up knowledge. Exactly. And, and now this is it's um, confined. Well, it used to be called OTV training, overturned vessel training. Then they call it. Then they switch it to confined space rescue diving, and they again they went to parallel communities and kind of looked at some of the SOPs for confined space rescue. So some of those SOPs migrated into the trick because we went back and said, look, we got to do this better. You know, like, you know, because we, we felt that we we did as best we could, but it would have been better if we had been, you know, a little faster, did our searches a little better, got in there. Ideally, if, you know, we had found everybody, extracted everybody, we would have walked away with our head a little higher. So we kind of looked at this as kind of a, I wouldn't call it a failure, but we looked at it as a, a chance to improve. So we tried to do that after the fact. And like I said, doing things like researching, like confined space rescue, those guys are really good. Like, you know, anybody in that world, they're really good at what they do. The firefighters that specialize in that stuff. And uh, the you industrial know, the teams. teams. Yeah. yeah, they're like mine rescue teams too. Some of the SOPs that they use, like some of the marking of the rooms and stuff like that. There, there's a lot of these parallel skill sets that we were able to kind of borrow from. You know, and uh, that was one takeaway as we were able to say, you know, you got to keep improving. You need that continuous improvement cycle. You got to have that professional development. And just because you don't have the answer or your group doesn't have the answer doesn't mean somebody next door doesn't. No, it's a big world. Yeah. Lots of people out there trying to do similar things somewhere. Yeah. And again, like, you know, you might not have a a standard, you might not have an SOP, but somebody else might. So if you can draw on parallel experience or parallel industries, yeah, go for it. You know, that's the best way to go. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for that, Derek. That's an incredible story. Um, not all the stories have happy endings, but the whole point of, uh, of, of a session like this is to try and get, get some knowledge out there so that other people can learn and maybe pick up well, some other things. And, and that's what I love about these, uh, these types of long form, uh, discussions. Cause you can, you know, 
maybe some maybe somebody on a fire rescue team somewhere might hear this thing. Oh wow, I never thought of that. You know, if, I, if that information can get out there, I think we're doing a good thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. Thank you so much uh, for being here again, uh, Derek. It's uh, absolutely uh, enthralling to hear the stories from you, and uh, I hope we get to have you on here again someday soon. No, you guys are doing good work. Very much appreciated, boys. Thanks so much. Be safe out there. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that wraps us up for today. Uh, Once again, my name is Dan Latchamoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Legacy Survival Stories. We'll see you soon. If you have a story to tell or know of someone who does, please contact us at Legacy Survival Stories, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find us at LegacySurvivalStories.BuzzSprout.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and help us move up the charts with a five-star rating. We like comments and reviews, so we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and almost anywhere you can find podcasts. Legacy. Survival Stories. 